This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Gary. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have Dinosaur of the Day Aurora Ceratops, as well as a bunch of dinosaur news. But first, as always, we would like to thank some of our Stegosaurus and other patrons who get shoutouts. And this week we'd like to thank Scotty, Jackson, Megan Dixon, Kessler, Tristan Jules, Grandpa Dino, Rhinosaurus, and Morgan Eklov. And Morgan just joined, so thank you. Yeah, thanks to all of our patrons. We really appreciate all of your support. And if you want to join this growing group of awesome people, check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino. And hopefully we got your name right, Morgan. We tried. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So jumping right into the news, we have a new dinosaur Hooray. from Mongolia. Yes, it is... Not like super new because it's a new species and not a new genus. But still. Yeah. So it's not like a new something saurus. It's like a new something I <laughs> or is, if you know what I mean. So what happened was these researchers led by Funston published a paper in paleogeography, paleoclimatology, and paleoecology. I really hate saying that, that journal name. And they're on the publication it always just says paleo huge and it has these little tiny geography climatology oh, I was stuff gonna next say to it. you can refer to it as p3 or something yeah maybe we'll do that in the future <laughs> no one will know what we're talking about except us and the few people that remember so what they did was they reviewed seven oviraptorosaurs which were found in mongolia and really seven genera of oviraptorosaurs because it included more than 500 dinosaur skeletons also known as occurrences, because they're not really all complete. And I think saying 500 skeletons gives the wrong impression, like they had 500 full, beautiful skeletons to work with. You know, some of them might just be a single bone, really, that you can diagnostically tell as an oviraptorosaur. They focused on the Nemegt Basin, which is a pretty common spot to find oviraptorosaurs in Mongolia, obviously, if they have 500 to work with. <laughs> and... Oviraptorosaurs, as a reminder, includes, in this case at least, three different types of dinosaurs. So they had avimimids, sanathids, and oviraptorids, which are all pretty similar for anybody looking at dinosaurs that isn't an expert. They all are kind of medium-sized, they have beaks, they were probably herbivores or maybe omnivores. And to me, when I look at them, I think cassowary 
They have that crest usually on their head. Um, some of them have bigger crests than others, but you know they kind of all have that general look to them. And some of them are bigger, like ostrich-ish size, and then obviously a lot longer than an ostrich because they all had tails, because that's <laughs> one of the things that makes dinosaurs cool. Interestingly, they I don't think were in, originally intending to name a new species. So they were looking at a lot of details about where the dinosaurs were found, what they might be able to infer about these different groups and all that kind of stuff. And they found that each species is only found in one specific locality. So out of those 500, and they have the seven different genera, they were all kind of mutually exclusive. So you'd find all of this type over here and all of a different type in a separate area and not a lot of co-mingling going on. They're not really sure if this is due to sampling. So, you know, you just happen to find all your oviraptorids <laughs> over in this spot and all your sanathids over here. Or if it was because of behavior, like they were going together in a flock and this is the spot that, you know, this group had kind of, it was their territory or their turf <laughs> mm -hmm. or nesting ground or whatever. And the other ones just would have no reason to be there. They're not really sure. Even with 500 finds. <laughs> you never have enough fossils. You really can't. And you kind of, for this type of stuff, you might want some other types of fossils than just bones. You know, you might want to see some eggs or some footprints or things like that to nail down some of the behavior. They also found that the oviraptorids, as opposed to the two other groups, seem to prefer drier environments. So they were out in more of the desert, whereas the others were around a little bit more moisture at least. I mean, it was all pretty dry around there, but at least <laughs> they would seem to stick a little bit more to wet environments or wetter environments. And then, like I said, they named a new species, and it's a new species of Avamimus, and they named it Nemectensis. I think you can guess where that comes from. <laughs> they added to this existing genus because of some subtle differences that they saw between this group of Avamimus and the previous Avamimus type species. And really, they're very subtle differences that I'm sure I wouldn't notice if I looked at them. The bones had slightly different openings. There were some parts of the bones that were wider or otherwise subtly different. But it was diagnostic enough that they think they can safely name a new species. We've talked about that before. With modern birds, there are a lot of individual species that look very similar from a distance. And if you looked at the skeleton, I don't think you'd be able to tell any difference whatsoever. It's coloration patterns and these really subtle things. So it makes sense that if you see a common characteristic of like this hole in the bone is always a little bit bigger and then it coincides with the flattening of this other bone that it was likely a different species because otherwise you'd expect it to be more consistent. Garrett's a splitter. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Well, I mean, <laughs> I want evidence for it, though. I'm certain that a lot of the dinosaur bones that were lumping together as one genus and species were actually different species, but that those characteristics that identify them as a different species just didn't fossilize. So, yeah, I think it's okay to do some splitting here and there, especially when you have a huge sample size. They also reviewed some other oviraptorosaurs, and they think that They've confirmed that oviraptorosaurs started in Asia and then went back and forth between Asia and North America. You can see from the evolution and the characteristics that it looks like they kind of went back and forth quite a bit. Speaking of new dinosaurs, 
this is not a new dinosaur, but <laughs> it's a new discovery found in Utah and written by Xavier Jenkins and others, published in The Geology of the Intermountain West, which is a Utah-specific publication, and it's open access, so I really like it. They published on a partial sacrum of a Coelophysis bori, and they say that it's the first unambiguous dinosaur specimen from the Triassic in Utah. Those are hard to find. And this one was a partial sacrum. We talked about the sacrum last week. It's that middle part of the hips, basically some fused vertebrae that kind of go along. Because in dinosaurs, since they have a tail, it's just like the spine passes through the hips and then keeps going. <laughs> so, But they're fused in the middle there. And they say that it's the first unambiguous dinosaur specimen because they think that other reports of Triassic dinosaurs from Utah were quote-unquote unsubstantiated, thrown a little bit of shade, paleontologist <laughs> shade. <laughs> and they don't think that those previous finds show unambiguous dinosaur traits. So they look maybe like dinosaurs and they're in the right formation and stuff like that, but they could be other animals that were around at that time. So there just isn't enough detail that's dinosaur-specific. These are from the very late Triassic and they were found in the Chinle Formation near Moab. I don't know if it's going to be on display anywhere. It's not super exciting to look at because it's a little tiny part of a hip. But the Triassic. Yeah, it's cool. It's hard to find stuff from that early. And speaking of the Triassic, this isn't really about the Triassic. That segue didn't work. There's a new paper by Jonathan Tennant and others published in Pure J, also open access. And they were looking at if our knowledge of dinosaur diversity has changed over time. So I was thinking the Triassic is a different time, but really they were looking at the time period between 1991 and 2015. Which is no time at all. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, doesn't it, yeah, insignificant. It's basically a single point in time as far as paleontologists are concerned. But in that period of time, humans have managed to fill in a lot of gaps with hundreds of new dinosaur discoveries. They point out, though, that a lot of periods are still largely missing. So new discoveries that are found within those time periods really throw all of our models out of whack because a single species found there can really mess stuff up. And we talked about this a little bit with Ornithoscolida, where we have so few early Triassic South American dinosaurs that if you just find one more new one, it looks like something is branching earlier and all the stuff underneath it falls into different categories and things like that. So even though we filled in a lot of gaps, there are still these points in time that are missing a lot of fossils and make it really difficult to generalize how dinosaurs evolved and how they moved around. So they point out three really volatile periods where it would be really helpful to find more fossils. They said the latest Jurassic of Europe the mid-Cretaceous of North America, and the late Cretaceous of South America. I was surprised that they didn't include in there the Triassic at all, because to me, it seems like, for at least for Ornithocelida or Ornithoscolida, you want a lot of dinosaurs right there in the beginning so you can kind of see how things started branching. But I guess maybe the latest Jurassic of Europe might help a little? That's still pretty late, though, so I don't know. They also said that 
quote, global estimates of diversity based on the fossil record are often also based on incomplete and distinct regional signals, each subject to their own sampling history, end quote. So even if we do know a lot about, say, the latest Cretaceous in North America, a lot of that comes from the Hell Creek. So that's one point in North America from a very specific part of the Cretaceous. So even though we've kind of filled in a lot of gaps, then you'd have to wonder about other environments that the Hell Creek wasn't representing and things like that to try to fill in. Even if you have all the times, you probably don't have all the environments for those times. The funniest thing to me, though, was they said, quote, it's entirely possible for much of what we know about dinosaurs of the present to change within the next 20 years. End nice. Quote. <laughs> well, it makes sense. That's yeah. kind of what happened. Very true. And to me, it's why it's so hard to recommend like a really good comprehensive dinosaur book because everything is constantly changing so much that how do you even learn what the current state of things are when the current state is constantly changing? And I'm sure it's why a lot of people aren't writing books because it would be so frustrating to write a book and then it immediately is out of date. So a lot of our favorite compendiums are, you know, about a decade old because why write a new one? It's going to immediately need revisions. <laughs> well, there are new dinosaur books. They're just not as reference-y maybe. Yes. Maybe more essay-ish. Exactly. And I think it is also helpful to really do a focused group. So like you could just talk about tyrannosaurs and kind of nail that down. Sauropods. Yeah. Sauropods is a pretty big group though. They did it. Matt and Mark. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They did. And that's a good book. Yeah, that was good, too, because they had a pretty quick turnaround. If you have a really long writing process, by the time you're done writing it, it's going to have a lot of outdated stuff. If you can turn it around quickly like they did, it definitely helps. From now until May 20th, you can see the exhibit Giant Mysterious Dinos at Midland Center for the Arts in Michigan. Outside the museum is this 70-foot-long Mementosaurus, which would be cool to pose with. <laughs> Although difficult. I think I've tried. It is hard to pose with such large animals. <laughs> yeah. But tickets cost $10 for adults, $7 for kids, and it includes life-size animatronic dinosaurs, including looked like T-Rex and Pladiosaurus in some of the pictures, and skeletons and a dig pick. Cool. I always wonder with these just how much is going on with the animatronics. Like if it's just a tail wagging or a mouth flopping or if it's a little bit more than that. It's probably a mix. Yeah. It's always hard to tell from these descriptions. There were some videos. The Pladiosaurus was moving its head. Okay, so probably the simpler side of things. Could be. That's more common for sure. The Museum of World Treasures now has Ivan the T-Rex, which is their signature attraction, but they have Ivan permanently now. And Ivan was on perpetual loan from private owners until recently, but he has been part of the museum since 2007, and Ivan is a nearly complete T-Rex skeleton that is about 40 feet long and has 65% of his bones. Pretty nice. good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's nice that that's gone from a private collection to somewhere where more people can appreciate it. Yes, although it was already at the museum, but now there's no risk that Ivan will leave. <laughs> yeah. 
Thanks to Janice who shared this one with us via Facebook. It's some sad news. So some thieves stole from Alberta's Jurassic Forest theme park, which is this 40-acre natural forest with 50 life-size animatronic dinosaurs. There were three thieves, and they broke in, stole figurines and dinosaur skull replicas and some other merchandise. But they were caught on surveillance video, and now police are trying to figure out who they are. And Janice said that the whole community is so shocked, and they're spreading the word. So hopefully they figure out who these people are soon. Yeah, I'm wondering why they broke in and decided to steal stuff, because it was almost all like replicas and things that you wouldn't think would be worth that much money on the black market. The park is closed during winter. So maybe they just thought it was a good opportunity to break in? Could be. And then they also said that the main part of the park is this outdoor thing with all these cool dinosaurs you can look at. And they didn't mess with any of that. They basically just broke into the office. And like you said, they stole stuff from the gift shop and like a couple computers and things like that. So they said they'll definitely be open in April when the time comes when they would normally open. Yeah. So that's good. That is good. In happier news, on Valentine's Day, which was not that long ago, there was one couple in San Antonio, Texas that got married at the courthouse, and they were both wearing T-Rex costumes. And one was wearing a wedding skirt and veil over the T-Rex costume, (laughs) so you could tell she was the bride. The T-Rex costume functions pretty well as a veil itself, too. (laughs) But doesn't look it. Yeah, I suppose. It sounds like it was a last-minute decision to do this. They said that they had three days to order their costumes. (laughs) But in the picture, they look very happy. They're embracing. I'm sure they got a lot of people's attention. Yeah. Yeah, the T-Rex costumes are definitely good at getting attention. The few times we've used it in public, everybody seems to notice. (laughs) (laughs) Partly just because you're so tall. It sticks up a couple feet above your head. And the head bobbles. Yeah. (laughs) It looks pretty ridiculous. It's pretty fun. Also in Texas, but in San Marcos this time, recently heard about a married couple, Lisa and Paul Ray, who opened, it's called the Candy Raptor Dinosaur Cafe and Candy Store. And Raptor is W-R-A-P-T-O-R. That's a play on the words like Candy Raptor and then Raptor, the type of dinosaur. Candy Raptor? Mm-hmm. Oh, Candy Wrapper, <laughs> sorry. Yes. Yeah, I really like that pun. It's a good one. (laughs) Yeah, so they opened the store and the cafe last year because they wanted to offer something unique, which sounds like they are succeeding. Mm -hmm. And you can eat breakfast and lunch there. They have floats, sodas, handmade chocolates and milkshakes, and a lot of vegan options. And they also sell candy, as you might have guessed. And the reason that they decided to add dinosaurs to this is that Paul likes dinosaurs. Nice. We like dinosaurs too, Paul. Good work. (laughs) So this next one is kind of loosely related, but apparently Gollum from the Lord of the Rings movie was inspired by dinosaurs, but somewhat. (laughs) After reading it, it it seemed just a little bit. Anyway, Joe... Letary, who's a senior VFX supervisor at Weta, and that's Peter Jackson's studio. And Peter Jackson is the one who directed all of the and created all of the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit movies. And Joe made Gollum. 
And Joe was also an artist for Jurassic Park back in the early 90s. And he said that he was interested in what made the dinosaurs look realistic, like the details of their skin and the lighting and the cinematography. And so he used those similar techniques to create Gollum to make him look more realistic. Interesting. At first, when you were saying that, I was assuming that it was the motion capture guy oh, that no. was acting dinosaur It's the VFX artist. Yeah. So like the, the texture of his skin and like the little wisps of hair and stuff like that, I guess. All the details, yeah. I guess I could see that. Maybe like a aquatic type dinosaur or semi-aquatic because he's all shiny. <laughs> yeah, he is pretty shiny. I think he had webbed feet too, didn't he? I don't remember. It definitely seemed like he would have webbed feet <laughs> <laughs> based on how well he swam. He's crazy like a bird. Yeah. Yeah, bird is a pretty good description, the way he kind of hopped around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Speaking of movies, Sharknado 6 is coming out this oh, finally. summer. And it's going to involve dinosaurs. Have you been following all the Sharknados? No, I thought they were only up to three. I don't know when four and five came up. Uh, every year since the first one came I out? I guess so. <laughs> Must be doing well. Uh, yeah, I know they're very popular. <laughs> we actually... When we posted this on social media, we got a lot of uh, comments. People seem really excited to see this, <laughs> but they also don't know why. I think I've only seen the first two Sharknados. I need to catch up. Oh, I think I only saw the first one. We could probably skip to six. I think we'll be able to figure out what's going on. <laughs> yes. Well, in this one, the main character, Finn, travels through time and he has to save his family and to do that, he has to fight Nazis, dinosaurs, knights, and ride on Noah's Ark. It's a lot of time traveling. So we're combining dinosaurs with Noah's Ark and knights and Nazis? Yeah, but I imagine they're all in their separate time periods. How are they going to get through all that in like a one and a half hour movie? That's Maybe good. it's That's really lot. short fight sequences. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like he fights one dinosaur that like runs to get on like Noah's Ark or something. Or he gets transported. That's how I imagine it. Oh. He's not running through time. He gets transported through time. Or like it's involuntary, like he's something has gone wrong and he's just like blipping into different time periods. Well, we can find out July 25th when the movie premieres. Okay. <laughs> We've got some toy news. So the New York City Toy Fair happened recently and Mattel introduced a Jurassic World coding toy. Hmm. You can pair the dinosaurs with Bluetooth to a Jurassic World app and then drag and drop code to make the dinosaur robots move, light up, make noise, or do other things like dance. (laughs) (laughs) So in the video, there's two raptors from the movie. One's blue and the other is a villain dino, which I guess we'll figure out what kind of dinosaur that is later. But the toys will come out this spring and they'll cost about $60. And they, uh, you have to charge them with a micro USB, and the one that comes with the toy looks like a piece of meat, <laughs> and it goes in its mouth. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I kind of want to get those. Yeah, you could make a dinosaur dance. Yeah, I think I could handle it. <laughs> <laughs> also at the Toy Fair, 3Doodler launched Start, which is a 3D printing pen, and they also started a series of STEM activity kits. One of them helps kids build robotic dinosaurs, and the picture of the kit shows a triceratops. Hmm. I couldn't find too many other details, but kits cost about $60. They don't include the pen, so I guess you gotta buy that separately. 
I guess $60 is the going rate for one of these stem dinosaur toys. Yeah. Seems worth it, <laughs> I think. <laughs> Especially if you can give it to a kid after you're done playing with it. <laughs> That's your goal there? <laughs> if we had kids, this would be something I definitely got for, like, my kids in, like, quotes. And then it was really just for me. Both of them? <laughs> yeah. Or, like, their birthday. I'd be like, they really want this dinosaur that helps them code. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Auroraceratops, which was a request from Philip via Patreon. So thanks. It was a Neoceratopsian that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now north-central China and South Korea, and it was described in 2005 by Yu Li Ji, Lamana, and Dodson. The name means Don Horned Face, and it's a combination of the fact that it's an early Ceratopsian, and it's a reference to Don Dodson, who's Peter Dodson's wife, and Peter, as I just said, was one of the paleontologists who described Aurora Ceratops. And Aurora means Dawn in Latin, which is the early Ceratopsian part. That's nice that he named it after his wife. Mm -hmm. The type species is Auroraceratops rugosus, and the species name means rough in Latin, and it refers to the rough areas on the skull and jaw. There's only one known specimen of a subadult, and it consists of a nearly complete skull. It had a shorter, wider snout compared to other Neoceratopsians, and the snout was high and round, and the skull was flat and wide. The rough parts of the skull were probably covered in keratin, which may have helped protect it in budding or pushing contests if it was fighting for dominance or mating rights. Hmm. 
Auroriceratops was uh, herbivorous. It had two pairs of fang-like teeth in the premaxilla, though it's not clear why. It may have been for digging and helping to grip onto plants to pull them out of the ground. It was about six and a half feet or two meters long, and it's the second basal neoceratopsian found in the Mazangshan area of China. The first one was Archaeoceratops. Another similar ceratopsian that lived around the same time, but in a different area in Liaoning province, was Liaceratops. Auroriceratops, uh, though, has enough differences in its skull to warrant being its own genus. Split it out. Yeah. <laughs> Split it out real good. <laughs> And our fun fact of the day is that we are now in, as in, in 2017 slash 18. It's definitely 2018 now. (laughs) The peak of dinosaur discovery. This is based on that tenant paper that I referred to earlier. And they used the number of genera for the number of discoveries happening because we also mentioned earlier that the species level is a little bit too inconsistent and noisy. So they just stuck with the genus level. And then they broke it down by half decade of discoveries. So the period from, say, like 1836 to 1840, they would add up all the discoveries in that period and so on and so forth, all the way up to 2011 to 2015. So as kind of a benchmark, the half decade of the Bone Wars that included the most finds was 1876 to 1880. And guess how many that was, Sabrina? Bones or number of dinosaurs number of genera new genera named 170 16 oh way off (laughs) almost exactly 10 times less (laughs) (laughs) and the number of new genera actually didn't reach even the 40s until the 1990s it stayed really low for a long time and it actually went way down after that 16 number there were a couple half decades where there were only three new dinosaur genera named. Then once the 90s happened, there was a steady increase. And by 2001 to 2005, there were 113 genera named. 2006 to 2010, there were 162 new genera. But then in 2011 to 2015, it dropped a little bit to 149 new genera. So it might be an inflection point where we've sort of started rounding off that upper end of new dinosaurs discovered. Although, when you look at it in terms of the individual dinosaur groups, they split it out into sauropods, theropods, and ornithischians. And the only one that dropped between 2006 to 2010 and 2011 to 2015 is sauropods. So both the theropods and ornithischians were at the same level as the prior half decade. (laughs) I think that might be because a lot of that exploration was already going on in, say, like South America, where we find a lot of sauropods, but like China, where you find a lot more theropods and ornithischians, you know, that's blowing up right now. So in the future, there'll still be a lot of new dinosaur genera, but it might be starting to slow down a little bit. Obviously, still way more discoveries than even at the peak of the Bone Wars, though, so it'll be a long time. Like they said later in the paper, maybe another 20 years before things kind of settle out. At least. Yeah. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And if you'd like to join our growing community, check out our page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. 
One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.